This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man, I'm just I'm I'm trying to figure it all out, man. I don't even know. My head's in like <laughs> 15 different places right now is why you know what's crazy is I was thinking about that, too. And we have this like short conversation like, yo, what do we even say when people <laughs> are asking us how we're doing? Like, how does that even play itself out? Because, I, you know, sometimes I think people don't actually want to know how I'm doing. Uh, you know. So it's like, yeah, I'm good, man. It's I'm OK. But then also, thing, yeah. I don't want to lie, you know. And I don't want to be like overly churchy, be like I'm blessed and highly favored because number one, that might be different connotations for other people. You it's know. it's a lot, man. How do you answer these basic human questions? It's crazy it's out here. It's very tough. And this week was exceptional because as we're recording this, it's, it's, it's right after Thanksgiving. And so like I'm filled up with family and friends. We got to go back to the Chicago area where I grew up. I got to see my family. I got to see some extended family I haven't seen for 16 years, man. 16 years. I couldn't even believe it. And I got to see some friends I grew up with. So I'm like, you know, filled up with just good things and remembering where you came from and all the love, all the immaturity and, and tensions you have to grow out of, all that too. But then also sort of paying attention to the headlines and so much is happening in the world that's negative. And it's like, on one hand, extremely local and personal. And on the other hand, you know, sort of this national and international scope that has has you burdened for hmm. stuff that's way beyond you. So it's it's just, it's, it's, it's hard. I think, I think we have to really remember we're mind, body, soul, and sort of spend time getting in touch with with where we are because if we don't there's just a cascade of information and input that mm-hmm. i think threatens to drown us so that's just yo like- I, I think that's actually the subtext of everything we've been doing for the past two to three years is trying to figure out like what's a space that's emotionally physically spiritually mentally healthy for us like yeah. <laughs> as yeah. black men in america who are constantly inundated with these hashtags i mean there was a hashtag ej bradford that just Man. happened it was about 45 minutes away from where my wife and i were um wow. um actually on christmas or not christmas on thanksgiving uh evening um mm. and so shopping black friday and doing all that with the fam and so you know you just think about how those are situations that hit so close to home. And then you're trying to figure out like, what's this, what's this space for us to just be honest and, you know, about how we're doing and is there a space for that? Is there, you know, is that something that our churches even have the the bandwidth for, um, <laughs> you know, that's tough. That's tough. But I, I did want to ask you, man, did, did politics come up at all? 
in in the conversation? Oh, did did it ever come up in the conversation around the Thanksgiving dinner table? No, and it's interesting. Uh, so so I see like every Thanksgiving, every holiday season rolls around, and you see all these articles about how to talk to your family about politics and Thanksgiving or how to avoid those topics. I'm like, is it the same for like black people? Because <laughs> um, if you look at the statistics, we're actually the most reliably partisan demographic in the nation. Uh, meaning we we right. tend to vote all for the same party. Um, I think that does cover up a lot of ideological diversity. And so we did, it wasn't at the Thanksgiving meal, but uh, we did get into it a little bit about conservative conservatism versus liberal, but it wasn't heated or anything like that. What about you? Right. Yeah, no, it was never, I've never really had Thanksgiving dinner table politic conversation. Now there have been times where it's like, kind of the after when when everybody's kind of rolling around mm-hmm. and you know something comes across a ticker on the news or someone's flipping the channels and they're like oh here here he go is, here she go is. again you know you'll get little comments like that but i didn't necessarily have no knockdown drag out you know thought process um or or you know debate or controversy i just i personally don't I'm not really familiar with that. Like that happened maybe once with my aunt when I was like super conservative. Where I was like Fox News to the, yeah, you to were the that truth. <laughs> yeah, like that that one year where I was just so colonized. I was like, I was like, don't vote for Obama. Never vote for him ever, ever, ever because wow. of these ten reasons. You know, like vociferously like arguing against a candidate when I had never done that before, which was odd. You know, and uh, my aunt was like, yo. You- you okay? Like, why are you thinking like this? Anyway, and so now she kind of laughs because she's like, well, okay, see, I converted you now. Um, <laughs> so it's always funny to talk talk to her because she's the oldest sibling on my dad's side. And so whenever I get the opportunity to talk with her, whenever she stops by, I'm able to go to Mississippi. We always laugh about that one conversation because the whole family was just like sitting there watching us go back and forth. <laughs> and and they were like, yo, you should like run for some sort of political office. And I'm like, nah, man, because of this, this, and this. And now I'm like, bro, I didn't even know what I was talking about. Wow. You know? wow. Just putting words together, man. So I don't know. I, at the Thanksgiving dinner table itself, I'm just, I'm not familiar with that. But kind of in the aftertime where we're just kind of resting and chilling. Yeah, sometimes. But as you said, like, it's not a lot we disagree on right. um, in those settings. So it's kind of like the stakes are different when you're amongst your own. Well, that's the whole thing, right? It's like, you, I think people insultingly say that the black community in America has been duped by in, you know, the last 60 years or so, the democratic party. Yeah. Like we, we have to like <laughs> unpack the, even the implications, the subtext of that. Like we don't have the capacity to think intelligently on our own. And so we've just unwittingly bought a lie you know, like, yeah, like, we've oh. fallen into a trap because we just don't have the intellectual cognitive nuance to see like, oh, this candidate might not be all good. You know, like right, this is right. a weird. But they often I hate when people say that. Yay. Come on, all the black people. Y'all vote. We got watermelons over here. Like, is that what you think? <laughs> like, Boy, that's you what it feels like. That's what it feels like. Like, how can you how can you say that for the past, you know, however many decades, millions of black people to a woman, to a man, have just been hoodwinked and bamboozled by the Democratic Party. Now, this is not at all saying the Democrats have done an awesome job. I mean, come on, you y'all. Know? Like, man, see, we, we shouldn't even have to say that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have to. even have no. to say that. We should not have to say that. I know y'all want us to say that and y'all want us to have all these qualifiers. 
we shouldn't have to qualify ourselves when we didn't say what you think we said. We didn't yeah. say that. It, that's just, here's the funny thing. The funny thing I've always thought about that is even black conservatives, whether Uh-oh. you're black conservatives or black liberals, even black conservatives use language of liberation. What? Like, so they're like, li- li- listen to this, because this is funny. They're like, oh, well, you've, you're you're enslaved to the Democratic Party. You need to break free from the Democratic I'm like, wait a minute. So you agree with liberation. <laughs> like, so it's like, okay, well, this is not a concept when it comes to racism, but then it's a concept when it comes to what? Like, how does this work? Like- Anyway, I could go on and on about that, yeah. but I think yeah. we're on 10 because of the midterms that just happened. Exactly. Midterms just exactly. happened. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a political junkie, so I, t- I like to go through all the little, you know, look at the counties and the the yep. things. Like, it's yep. so funny how people were talking about the the tightness of the Florida governor's race where I live. And I sat back and I laughed because I'm like, the Florida governor's race the past two elections has been decided by one percentage point. Like, this is normal. That's just Florida being Florida. Like, we're an extremely divided state because there's a northern part of the state and then there's a southern part of the state. And the southern part of the state is typically more diverse. And the northern part of the state, in in a lot of places in the central part of the state, is more conservative. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, homogenous as far as a demographic. And so, you know, I just like doing all that stuff. And it's bad because, you know, you kind of get invested in it. You're like, oh, man, what's going to happen? Is this going to happen? And it's not like sports, but it's covered <laughs> like sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So That's it's right. almost That's like, right. ah, well, he's going to shoot a three. Like, he can, nobody can do anything at that point. Like, it's over. But it's covered in a way that's like, man, well, what will happen if this county is like, they're only 65% in and he's got a huge advantage. And I don't know. It's always it's always very interesting. And so the theater of it, I really enjoy. But- I think as I've I've grown older, I kind of come to this realization that the stakes are high for a lot of people. So this determines for a lot of people, you know, their wage or determines whether or not, and it did for me in a previous election, whether or not I get health care, you know? So I was like, oh, okay, like I should probably get health care. Like that would be awesome. And it's like, well, they won't cover me without like exorbitant rates because of pre-existing conditions. And, and so I was like, oh, so this is actually a thing. And so I'm like, dang, like I should probably get involved in this political process <laughs> to see what's going on. So it actually matters. Yes. Yeah. So we had all these races in my area and in my state. And then now you have another race that's actually going on right now in in your the state where you kind of reside ish uh, um, yeah. in Mississippi, a <laughs> state that's really close to you and a state where you spend a whole bunch of time. So. Man, what is going on in this? It's a Senate race, right? Yes, it's a Senate race. What's going race. on in this Mississippi Senate race, man? Y'all right. joking about lynchings. Y'all got you know, people y'all. talking about crazy stuff. Is this <laughs> is this funny to y'all now? Like, is this a thing? It's always been like this. So, so it goes back to the point we were making earlier about Black people being sort of the most solidly Democrat voting group demographic in the nation. But there's a reason for that, like a very simple reason. And it has to do with racism. We vote for the candidate and the party that is less overtly racist. Notice my words, less overtly racist. Now, in the Mississippi Senate race, uh, there was a senator who got sick uh, earlier this year. And the governor, Phil Bryant, who's a staunch Republican and a Trump supporter, he appointed a woman named Cindy Hyde-Smith, who is, of course, a staunch Republican and not just a Trump supporter, she has voted with him 100% of the time, 100% of the Mm -hmm. time. Now, 
she is in a runoff with a Democratic senator. And this is very interesting. His name is Mike Espy. Not only is he Democratic, but he's black. If Espy gets elected, he would be the first black U.S. senator from Mississippi since Reconstruction. We still doing first, y'all. We still doing first in you 2018. You wrap your head around that. Reconstruction was from roughly 1865 to 1867. We had Hiram Revels in there. Uh, we had one more. And, and, and that's it for black senators, male or female, from the state of Mississippi up through 2018. Can you imagine that? This is more than 115 hmm. years, 120 years, and no black representation in the Senate. So you have not only a Democrat against a Republican, you have white against black. And not only do you have white against black, you have Cindy Hyde Smith, who is recorded on video saying of a supporter, if he invited me to a public hanging, I would sit in the front front row. This is in a state with the most recorded lynchings, right? Like there were a lot of public. It's just a weird, that's just, bro. That's just a weird comment. Like, so the reason I'm hopping in is because we had a situation like this in a Florida governor's race with Ron DeSantis, who's a former congressman yeah. running for governor against Andrew Gillum, um, who is a black mayor of Tallahassee. And the day after Gillum won, kind of out of nowhere, uh, Ron DeSantis says something in in the, the frame of, well, we don't need to monkey this up. We don't need to monkey yeah. it up. And I'm like, my man, like, who talks like that? And people, and people, it's so funny because you will always find people, there is no unimpeachable right and wrong in our political news cycle. Someone will say, well, you know, this is what happened that caused this, or you know what he meant. And it's on all sides. It's just hilarious to me because I'm like, who talks like that? I mean, was he saying monkey around? Like, and why would you say monkey? Like, who, who, who thinks of this? Like, who thinks of, man, if he was holding a public hanging, I would be there with a shirt on. It's like, what? Like, how does this even work itself out? So in a biblical frame, like every time, and this is true for me, and 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 boy, am I terrified because I say so much. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Bruh, come on. So Bring to that Bible me, in. these are not just like careless comments that they pulled out of the air. This is in their sort of atmosphere, right? And this is what has seeped into their their framework and their worldview, their way of thinking about life that that in spontaneous comments and spontaneous comments tell the truth because you don't have time to plan and gauge reactions you just speak out of your heart right so in this moment of spontaneous commentary she said if he invited me to a public hanging i would be in the front row okay so number one if somebody invites me to a public hanging I'm calling authorities. I'm protesting. I'm not going to let this happen. I'm rescuing the victim. And then you want to go on to say, you're going to be in the front row? Um, what? Yeah, like, what's the joke there? Like, why is yeah. that funny? Like, I don't, it's, was it Was it as related to like, hey, I'm really, I'm really um, committed to this particular donor or like, was that what she was trying to say? But, like, but I, I'm, I'm lost here. Here's what's frustrating is that, that, okay, so she gives this very, tepid non-apology apology right and and doesn't admit she says he was just joking around people are twisting it she's not racist and it's just like i have uh, it's pulling out my hair because i'm like you don't say that comment unless you are raised in a white homogenous bubble and you don't even think about 
the impact this would have on black people, which, by the way, Mississippi has the highest percentage of black people of any state. D.C. is higher, but of any state in the union. So close to 40 percent. That's weird. No black senator since Reconstruction. (laughs) Exactly. And this is not. Man, that's weird, bro. Wherever you have a high percentage of black people, it could be in a city, it could be in a state, it could be in a county, you have some of the most ardent attempts to preserve white supremacy. And Mississippi is case in point. Man, this rabbit hole is deep, bro. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. So uh, apparently something happened where the governor chimed in. And this is where it got interesting. So it was very interesting. I was like, oh, okay. And one of uh, our friends, Reverend C.J. Rhodes, he talks about this actually in an article um, on The Witness, bcc.com. So if you want to check it out, it's why the history of lynching is no laughing matter. And so this is amazing, man. He mentioned that, you know, the governor immediately goes to, and this is right at the National Right to Life President's endorsement. Like the governor immediately goes to, well, we got black genocide and it's 20 million African-American children that have been aborted and no one wants to say anything about that. First of all, whenever you say no one wants to say anything about that, I always sit back. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I've stopped saying that myself because I'm like, yeah, probably a lot of people talk about that. Uh-huh. Um, and it's true. Like black conservatives talk about that all the time. Um, right to life organizations and anti-abortion organizations, pro-life organizations They talk about this statistic all the time or these similar statistics. Now, how they present these statistics are always very interesting to me. And, you know, we can parse into that in another podcast or now either one. But so the governor chimes in and he just kind of digs a hole a little bit deeper. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he chimes in. He's like, nobody's talking about the the uh, 20 million aborted babies, which I don't know where he gets that number. But it's always astounding to me that someone who doesn't. No, he said according to Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. oh. Like he said, no, that's literally what he said. He said according to Wikipedia. Like you have to Google black there stats. Like black stats on abortion. And 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 it's always astounding to me how people who in their policies show absolutely no concern for black people who in Mississippi are the poorest of the poor, then you want to trot out a concern for black babies in the womb where you're not paying attention to the mortality rate of black mothers when they're giving birth. You're not paying attention to the poor health care that these mothers are getting. You're not paying attention to the incarceration rates of uh, brothers and uncles and fathers in the family that could help. Uh, raise and women, black women are the highest as far as the expanding incarceration rates. Black women in prison, they're growing the most, more than any other demographic. Like Dominique Gilliard in his book, Rethinking Incarceration, has phenomenal work on this. That sometimes we talk about prisons and incarceration as separating children from black fathers. But he said now we need to talk about it as separating children from black mothers because it's just such an epidemic and it's such an increase that we're not talking about. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. So, so speak to those issues on a consistent basis, and you might have some credibility when you bring up black babies in the womb. Otherwise, miss me with that. It's a deflection. So, so none of this takes away or or, or does anything to explain or or walk back Hyde Smith's comments. And not only did she say that, she was also recording another video joking, saying, let's make it a little bit hard, harder for these liberal college students to vote, which is the actual definition of voter suppression. Your opponents, 
uh, they they disagree with you and you want to make it more difficult for them to vote, which, by the way, there's a very long history of in the United States in general, in the South in particular, in Mississippi specifically. So, again, no laughing matter, particularly given the history. And not only that, there's one more at least. Uh, actually, there's a whole expose that the Jackson Free Press did. Shout out to the JFP for doing some wonderful research and work on on all of this, but particularly Hyde Smith's background. But there was another uh, photo that surfaced of her in 2014 at the Jefferson Davis, quote, presidential library. Hmm. Jefferson Davis, of course, was the president of the Confederacy. Yo, I didn't see this. Oh, I'm interested <laughs> in this. I didn't see this. Oh, bruh. It, I mean, telling you the rabbit hole is deep. So she's holding a, a, uh, a Civil War era rifle. She has a caption that says, you know, like something like the best, you know, the best Mississippi history, you know, the Mississippi history as told uh, in all its truth, something like that. Right. And she's standing next to um, someone from the Sons of Confederate veterans. He might have even been the president. Shout out to Bo York, our producer. He has produced an incredibly informative podcast Which called Red Subscribe Flag. to right now. Like, look, go to iTunes it, or wherever you yes. you listen to podcasts and subscribe to it. It's some of his best work. It's so well produced. The the storytelling is rich and informative, and he quotes the guy who is pictured in the photo with Cindy Hyde Smith. And the, the man is basically making the point where, yeah, yeah, I know black people were brought here as slaves, but that's part of your heritage and you should be proud of it. What? And I'm like, hold up, man. What? Yo, I see, part of me you. is not even surprised anymore when I hear these comments, but I did not know about that comment. That's crazy, man. Uh, I promise you. I'm going to get the exact quote for you. It's a it's a man named Greg, Greg Stewart of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. He's a spokesman for them. And he said on the podcast, if you're a black Mississippian. You can pretty much bet that you got here because your ancestors came here as slaves. That's not, first of all, you weren't the slave and aren't any slave masters left. But the other point is you got here somehow. And instead of being ashamed of it or being mad about it, there's really a lot of pride in that. What? what? That's verbatim. You can look as wow. episode six entitled 2001 on Red Flag Pod. Quote me. Wow. Bro, I'm, I'm blown away. Him. I'm blown away. I, I did not know about that quote. That is, um, wow, you dropping this on the pod, so I'm getting like a, a raw reaction of things uh, I want to say, but I'm not going to say because of the Lord working you, on me yet through his Holy this Spirit. this rattling around in my brain, you know, all week, and, and, you know, it's Thanksgiving, you're supposed to be thankful and all this, and meanwhile, we've got a runoff election with somebody... So so here's the thing. How would you, how would you parse this, uh, uh, Tyler? Is Cindy Hyde Smith, given her comments, uh, given her background, is she racist? I mean, what does it matter? Like, I don't even <laughs> really care. Like, yeah, in in you know a natural. If I if we have to go in and do some scientific evidence on it, like yo, if we compare the comments, but nobody talks about the spectrum that qualifies you as officially racist. Like, is it one mm. comment? Is it two comments? Is the N-word? Is it hanging around mm. Confederate people? Is it this? Is it that? Is it joking about a public hanging? Is it... I'm like, man, I don't even... What does it matter? Like, the reality of the matter is she has no thought for the comments that she makes as it relates to people of color. And so that should mm. alarm people. Whether or not she's classified as a racist by a strict definition is inconsequential. It's intent versus impact. Because it seems as though we have to prove the blackest of the heart intentions 
for someone to be qualified as racist. And I say, man, throw it away. If y'all don't want to call people racist, don't call people racist. But we have to deal with the comments that they make. And clearly they're insensitive and clearly they're ill-informed and clearly they're harmful. So whether or not you want to call it a word, that's why I'm not even going to give people power to say like, oh man, well, he called her this and and they called him this. It doesn't matter about whether or not they fit in the technical definition. It doesn't matter whether or not you have a criteria that I would disagree with or I have a criteria that you would disagree with. These comments are reckless. So now what are we going to do with that? Call her whatever you want to call her. But what I'm saying is how are we going to deal with these comments? And that's the whole thing with Trump and everything else. I think people spend a whole bunch of time arguing about whether or not someone should be classified in a way without dealing with the substance of what's going on. Mm. And I understand from a media perspective, there's power in naming things. So there's power in naming it. But what I found is people are reflexively opposed to entering into a conversation in any way, shape or form when that word is used. Oh, well, throw the word away. You still gonna have to deal with everything. That's good. That's good. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. I read an op-ed, again, from the Jackson Free Press uh, by a guy named Fred Rand, who grew up in a, a very similar way as Cindy Hyde-Smith. Now, one of the things that came out uh, through this investigative reporting is that she went to a white segregation academy. And there's a whole lot to unpack there. What blew me away was the amount of people responding on social media who were surprised that there were such things as white segregation academies or that all they were the so country. common. <laughs> all over the country. Not just in come the on. South, like everywhere. Ooh, like, come on, y'all. Like, yes. if we talk about Congress in and of itself, we, we want to walk through Congress. I mean, come on, man. You're going to find a lot of things that surprise you. <laughs> so she went to this white segregation academy and uh, had this whole history, like like their their mascot is Colonel Reb uh, from the the you know the rebels the Civil War. Wow, um, you know they're waving Confederate flags. I mean it's deep, deep, deep. Like this is this is again. I don't want to particularize it just to the South, but it's some of these things that are very celebrated nationwide in a lot of ways about this myth of the lost cause and the Confederacy. But anyway, there was a a, a an op ed in the Jackson Free Press by a guy named Fred Rand who came from a very similar background. He had an awakening, if you will, and and realized his his sort of culture of white privilege that he had grown up in. And because it was such a closed system, a social system, he had no idea that he was so privileged. But then he he got out of it and started to realize. So he's he's writing about Cindy Hyde Smith. And I think this is going to be helpful for some people who 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 maybe this conversation is new for. He said, I don't think she is racist in the white nationalist sense of the word. In a way, she is something worse. She is oblivious to the real life issues of the average Mississippian mm-hmm. and unrepentant in her ignorance. Hmm. That's good, bro. That's poignant. Yeah. yeah. She's oblivious and she's unrepentant in her ignorance. She comes from a world, I'm telling you, a world that is filled with whiteness. And black people and other people of color 
are only peripheral. And people can say, oh, you're making a lot of assumptions, X, Y, Z. No, 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 no. I've seen this. I've been adjacent to it. I go to school with folks like this. I've spoken with, I go to church with folks like this. Here's how it goes. You're born into an all-white family. You go to an all-white preschool. You go to an all-white elementary and junior high. Maybe it's even a church school. And yeah, you got, you know, your five Asians and your one black person. Um, So you can say you have diversity. You're not breaking the law, but really the hegemony is whiteness. You go to a high school that's maybe a private high school or certainly in the affluent suburbs where there are very few minorities who tend to be more economically poor. And then you go to college. Most elite colleges and universities are predominantly white. Certainly, if you go in the state of Mississippi, the University of Mississippi is predominantly white. And not only that, it's been a bastion of preserving whiteness. And then you come back to a world of eliteness where you're a lawyer or a professional of some sense, and most of your peers remain white, and you marry white, and you have white kids, and you send them to white schools, and on and on and on it goes. And when in that cycle would you ever get interrupted to say, to learn? that black people live in a world that's almost completely different from yours. And that's Cindy Hyde Smith. And that is who Mississippians Mm -hmm. are going to vote to represent a state that is almost 40% black. And I'm like, no, no, non-starter. You can't do that. I don't. And here's the thing. I'm not asking Republicans to be Democrats. I don't, I don't, I don't, that's not the point. The point is you cannot, particularly as a Christian, stand up and Say you support a candidate who has so blatantly demonstrated a disregard and an ignorance of racial issues to the harm and detriment of black people. Okay, so look, no, you can do that. But if you do that, don't say you're for racial reconciliation. Don't say you're for diversity. Don't say you're for racial progress. You can, again, I'm not saying don't be Republican. I'm just saying get a candidate who's at least better at hiding their their racism or their racial ignorance. Better yet, get a candidate whose uh, policies you agree with, but also respects the human dignity of black people and other people of color. Like, yeah. can we do that? Yeah. So I think that's that's the very base level request. Like, if if there is a possibility that people are misconstruing what we're saying. It's not that you would think like we think, but the reality of the matter is, can you maintain your core convictions politically and some of the issues that you feel very strongly about politically that you know you may feel are expressions of theology or you may feel affect your local community or are just personal things that you feel that America should be doing? Okay, fine. Do you? Whatever. I mean, that's, that's people who are white, that's people who are black, that's people of all ethnicities. I get it. But the question is, can you kind of have those core convictions and at the same time not have racial insensitivity slash bigotry slash xenophobia slash overt racism? Is that possible? And one of the difficult things for me as we talk about the voting booth is how people sometimes kind of reduce and flatten out the complexity of voting for, for one candidate or voting for one party over another. And the thing that's difficult is people will say, man, well, I'm just going to evaluate people based upon you know, their merits. And I'm not going to just vote against, you know, the presidential administration. I'm not just going to vote against one party. I'm not going to do that. And I said, okay, cool. I totally understand that. But see, when I looked up the convictions and the stances and the core values for all the candidates, 
that I voted for, that I voted in elections that included, all of the Republican candidates said they backed Trump and mm. said they supported him. So I'm like, okay, well, listen, I get it. They might have different stances and they might have different things that won't be affected by the presidential administration, but it was their choice to tie their candidacy to him. So I'm like, now what do I do? Because I can't just sit here and ignore that they're tying their entire candidacy to him. Like, do you want me to look the other way? So in a sense, when people like judge people by their own merits, judge them by, I'm like, yeah, sure, I get you. But at the same time, why are they choosing to tether themselves to a national platform, which we would say Mm. in the most charitable sense has been comfortable with cruelty? In the Mm. most charitable way we can say it has been comfortable with being extremely cruel to people who are marginalized. So what am I supposed to do with that? And I think that's the question is, how are we thinking through the implications of xenophobia, bigotry, racism as it relates to our political process? Because what I think is happening is a slow desensitizing on certain sides of the political aisle with those negative and, you know, I'll just say it, deplorable um, thought processes. And if you don't think they're deplorable, I, I don't know what to tell you. But the reality of the matter is, I think it's a desensitization that's happening right now, especially amongst Christians, because we're digging our heels in rather than taking an introspective look and saying, hey, if you expose my ignorance, that's a grace to me. That's a gift to me. Because now I can take a step back and I can examine what you're saying. And maybe I find out I was wrong all along. Maybe I find out a blind spot that I wasn't aware of. But it can't happen if we're not open to that. It, it takes a great deal of humility is what I hear you're saying, because we have to have the humility to be corrected, even in our very strongly held beliefs and opinions. And make no mistake for people across the political spectrum, politics has replaced religion as something they worship. And so we have to actually pay attention to the way that politics in general has become idolatrous among many Christians. Um, but that is also not to take away from the fact that the politi- the stakes are high in politics. So, so for me, somebody who has lived in Mississippi, somebody who goes to school at the University of Mississippi, uh, somebody who cares a great deal about politics and how policy affects uh, whom Jesus would call the least of these, the poor, uh, the marginalized, uh, the prisoner, the stakes are extremely high. And for someone like this, in, in, in Ron DeSantis in, in Florida, Cindy Hyde-Smith in Mississippi, the president, to speak racially insensitive, ignorant, and straight-up racist comments and then be unrepentant about it, uh, deflect and change the topic and try to turn around the accusation, to me, communicates some very real and present danger. Uh, at the very least, policies that that would affect people like me or who look like me, um, or it emboldens people who could turn violent, right? And so what, what really gets me is our brothers and sisters in Christ, again, stick to your principles, be a conservative, be an independent, be a Republican, whatever it might be, but don't be okay with racism from your candidates. There yeah, are plenty. That's not, and that's not binding people's conscience to say that. Like, I'm not yes, binding your conscience you. to say don't be comfortable with that. 
Right, 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 right. Like to me, to me, what, what, what? If, if you do that, like, if, if, if these candidates go up and you say nothing, you don't talk to your party, you don't call, you know, elected officials, you don't, you know, protest this somehow. What it says to me, at the very least, is that you are ignorant and unaware of the actual history of racism in this country. I, I, I hope that it is true for many people. That if they knew the real history, the names, the dates, the places, the events, that they would actually be moved and more sensitive and perhaps act more urgently in the present, right? Um, that's that's actually that's actually what the hope is uh, yeah, for the and, color of compromise. And, right. And, <laughs> and and I hear you, and that would be my hope too. But the reality of the matter is I'm not so sure that's enough. And one of the big questions that I've asked myself is, at least on a very base level, is there any way that you can get the attention of people who may support certain candidates to at least get them to press back against the candidate themselves and you know against their platform if it includes these things? Listen, you support who you support. I don't want to bind your conscience about who you should and shouldn't vote for. I have strong feelings about that, especially people who are doing things that would put people's lives in danger. I get it. But at the same time, like, hey, is there a way that you can, what would it take? And what I'm finding is it's not enough. Like the things that we're talking about, the way that we're presenting it, it's not enough because I truly believe it's a posture that relates to some sort of political culture war that people have just accepted. Like it's no relinquishing of it. People have accepted it. And I feel like over the past few years, it's actually become more entrenched. And so, listen, I'm not saying people can't change, but at the same time, I'm saying, look, I don't think it's just going to be facts and figures. I think it's going to require something in our discipleship that challenges the heart of the matter and challenges our complicity. And if we don't talk about complicity and if we don't talk about those things, as far as the way in which we are connected to the past and connected to the present and connected to what's going to be set in motion for the future, then there's no way any, you can write all the books in the world, Jamar. This is why it is not just simply a book reading list. It's not just simply, hey, get the, get the black guy and get the black woman to come in and talk about race. It's not just that. It's more than that. It's, it, it's at the core of our discipleship. It's at the core of how we present the gospel itself. It's at the core of what we critique as far as our Americana, as far as our history, as far as our community. It's at the core of everything we believe. And so the question is, are we going to change that? Because that's truly where the, the true awakening comes from. Not just from facts and figures, not just throwing out something like it's, it's people think this is about debating and going back and forth. Well, let's get on the phone and let's debate. It's not about that because we can debate till we're blue in the face. But the reality is, if we're not willing to take a hard look at the ignorance that we all possess, then we're going to remain entrenched. So, look, it's the hope. I just, I don't think it's, I, um, I understand I mean, that messes with the historian's mind. I understand. No, I get it. I, because look, the historian is saying, come on. But the pastor in me is saying, listen, man, people going to have, they have these idols. And to quote Calvin, the hearts are idol making factories. And I believe that. And, you know, a nod to my reform folks. I believe it. So I'm just saying, I don't know if it's just going to be facts and figures, Jamar. I mean, look, you're talking to a guy who goes coast to coast talking to white Christians about racism. Um, and in the last year or so, 
in various venues, here's what I've said. I've said, uh, I'm convinced, like people ask me, well, what do we do about how do we change minds? And yeah, particularly the how do you change minds part. And I said, I'm convinced that you can stack facts and figures up to the ceiling. You can marshal the most airtight case you want, but it's not going to make a difference because at the end of the day, this is a spiritual issue. It is a spiritual blindness. It is a hard heartedness that Jesus Christ himself has to remove a heart of stone and give people hearts of flesh. I'm also convinced that in certain cases, for people who won't change their minds, for people who cling so tightly to a particular narrative that 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 pushes black pain to the side, minimizes it or denies it outright, that it's actually maybe a question of salvation. Now, I don't get to make that call. I am saying that you know a tree by its fruit. And if the fruit is continued indifference to one's neighbor, particularly one's black neighbor, given the history of this country, at a certain point, you got to ask, well, what gospel have they believed? Or have they believed the gospel? So in that sense, it's far, far, far beyond an intellectual issue. It's far, far, far beyond reading books. Now, my framework is, is the ARC model. Uh, acronym Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. So awareness, which is information, is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. I do think, as a student of history, there's a woeful lack, a woeful lack of basic knowledge about U.S. history in general, let alone racial history. I mean, if you want to start somewhere, just start with the Civil Rights Movement, because if all you know is Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and 1955 in the bus boycott, and 1963 in the I Have a Dream speech, then even one of the most sort of historically analyzed, even overanalyzed periods in history, you're, you're, you're weak on it. So there's a lot we can do to inform ourselves, but that's not all. We have to have relationships with people who are different. Now, that's typically where a lot of folks, particularly white evangelicals, like to stop. Hey, let's go grab coffee, let's get a lunch, or let's have them over for dinner. Actually, all those things are good, but they're necessary but they're not sufficient. Then you also have to have commitment. You have to have, you have to think more in turn, less in terms of a program and more in terms of a posture of justice. What that means is it's not going to be this one-time thing or even the short-term thing. It's going to be an ongoing process where you have committed yourself to dismantling the structural and institutional ways that racism plays itself out to the advantage of white people and to the disadvantage of people of color, specifically African-Americans. So, no, it's not it. I hope. <laughs> man, I hope you out here, man. History. You swinging hard, man. Hmm. You know. I just hope there's, you know, I know information's part of it, and I know ignorance is is going to perpetuate this stuff. And I know someone like Sidney Hyde Smith is is blatantly ignorant, and in a sense, you feel sorry for her because she lives in such a small oh, world. Absolutely, and absolutely. she's missing out on the beauty and the joy and the culture and the richness of a more diverse world, which we all are to the extent that that we lack uh, those insights and those relationships. Um, right. I mean, only truth and love is what what matters in the end as far as our communication. Like only truth and love is really going to actually, you know, get people's attention. And so we have to have that love in there to recognize that, you know, what they're doing is actually when people make these types of comments, they're dehumanizing themselves. They're not just dehumanizing us, but they're dehumanizing themselves as well. That's right. That's right. So, man, here's what I think we should do. I, I think this has been dope, but I think 
Next week, we should talk about actually construct. We should make this a part two next week <laughs> and talk actually about how we construct a political thought process. Like we should actually take people into the lab and show them how we think about issues. Um, I think that would be really helpful. And I know this is this is this dangerous. I get it. So, I mean, we can't give y'all all the sauce, but I'm just saying <laughs> we might be able to show y'all just in one specific area or in a couple of areas how we think about things. Because I think that's helpful for people, not just to curse the darkness, but to shine a light. So let's shine mm. the light and let's let's talk about how we construct this. Maybe, you know, black political theology. I'm a big J.D. Otis Roberts fan. So, you know, I like that type of stuff. Nice, Prophet nice. of the Black Believers, two great books that he's written kind of in this vein. So maybe we should do that, Jamar. What you think? I love it. Yes, yes, yes. Let's uh, okay because we get labeled the L word, liberal or whatever, and and people sort of dismiss the fact that we've actually thought a lot about this. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna think what you think about us. It's fine. Like I'm, I mean, I'm that's good. fine. Yeah, but I would actually like you saying it's it's a matter of discipleship, and so you know maybe we can offer a few insights from another perspective that that might inform your discipleship. Y'all got to stay tuned for that. Part two coming next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus podcast. Two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.